From Reboot, this is In Quarantine. I'm Steve Bodo, here talking life during Corona. Uh, I want to talk about the dishes, like the kitchen dishes, the dirty kitchen dishes. Guys, it's a little out of control. None of us are doing the dishes enough. I'm, I may be extrapolating my experience onto, onto some others of you, but like, I, I don't think anyone's doing the dishes. I, back in April and May, like more towards the start of this thing, like we were in my family, like we were doing the dishes like motherfuckers. We were doing the dishes. The kids would pitch in without even complaining. So like it felt like I was keeping things in order. Good. And now it's near the end of summer. You know, we're nearly six months into this thing. Very uncertain fall and winter looming ahead. And we're just, everybody is, uh, and, uh, and that is showing up in the kitchen sink. The point is, I realize there are many ways to gauge if you're doing okay in this time or if the virus is wearing you down, medically or otherwise. In our house, there's a graph that's measuring that, and it is the height of the undone stack of dishes. That is sort of the y-axis of how we're dealing with the virus. And it's not great. It would help help me lower some of the anxiety, I think, if we could see a little more what's coming. It's so uncertain. If we could see a little more into the future, and that's why I'm so excited about today's guest, uh, Marina Gorbis is the executive director of the Institute for the Future, which is a Silicon Valley-based research and consulting organization whose specialty is helping people navigate complex change, uh, which is something, you know, arguably we're experiencing right now. Uh, So Marina, welcome to In Quarantine. Thanks for coming today. Thank you. Great to be here. Um, So let's get right to the main question I think is probably on most listeners' minds. Uh, how are you doing with your dishes? You know, it's funny that you mentioned dishes because it seems like at the beginning of this pandemic and quarantine, our house kind of revolted and we had <laughs> so many things breaking down. One of them was a dishwasher. And so for about a month, we actually lived without a dishwasher. And so I was doing a lot of dishes. And, you know, it's just kind of like it was one of those things that I felt like I, I had control over. So I was actually enjoying doing dishes. There was some kind of a stability and a rhythm to it. And then our dishwasher is fixed now. And I think our dishes are piling up more. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's labor-saving devices for you. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> um, so uh, you are uh, you head up the Institute for the Future, which is uh, which is quite a name. What, what is the Institute for fundamentally? What is its mission? So the Institute is a 52-year-old uh, nonprofit research organization dedicated to helping people systematically think about the future, not because we believe that we can predict the future. In fact, that's not at all what the Institute is about. Uh, but so you are not, but your staff are not, they are not in no, fact we're not crystal fortune tellers, tellers oh. fortune tellers or okay. anything like that. I will... Uh... Yeah. I will I will revise some of my questions. Yeah, and the okay. purpose. I, I think in summary, I like to think about the Institute and our mission as to help fight short-termism. We see short-term thinking and short-termism and taking actions based on short-term without thinking about the future as a kind of an existential threat. Uh, that's and a great fight to be in. It's not been going so well. It's not going so well. And look where we are. 
I think like what we're seeing today is a result of that kind of short-termism, a result of short-term thinking. And it's based on the kind of choices and decisions and things we saw or didn't see decades ago. And we're reaping the results of that. For example? Well, for example, not investing in our public health care system. Not, we have tools for seeing these pandemics. It's interesting, about 10 years ago, we've been looking back a lot on our own work, but... Uh, 2008, we published a report on zoonotic diseases, which are diseases that are basically transmitted between animals and humans. And you could see even then that as we're encroaching on wildlife territories, as population is rising, and as we're going into these areas and basically interacting a lot more with wildlife of various kinds, that the likelihood of transmission is increasing. You take that and you take the fact that we're now traveling a lot more. So right. it's easy for these viruses to travel from place to place. You put the two and two together and you see that the likelihood is uh, greatly increased. And that's something that, you know, not just futurists, but epidemiologists and scientists have been talking about for over a decade. Well, why, is, why was that short-termism? Because we have incentives in the system. We don't have incentives in the system to act on the long term. We don't have future generations having a voice in these conversations. And we have just the opposite. Politicians think short term. They think about the next election. Organizations think. uh, Companies think about their profits, their stock price. So it's a systemic issue. So you're creating these systems that are very efficient but they're not very resilient. I gotcha. So when, when one is a professional futurist, what is the, <laughs> what is the job? You know, um, particularly these days, I, I feel that I'm as much a historian as I'm a futurist because, you know, that Mark Twain often repeated phrase, the future doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. Yeah. Um, so understanding how we got here is a first step in future thinking. This is not the first pandemic that uh, we've experienced. In fact, humanity uh, went through lots and lots of different pandemic periods. And so understanding these patterns, understanding historical patterns, understanding where we are today um, is very helpful. That's like the first step in thinking about the future. And then the other thing that we do is um, the future doesn't necessarily follow those exact patterns. So we look at what we call signals, things that are happening today that are kind of maybe on the margin or they look weird or strange, but they make you stand up and go, why are people doing it? That's an example of something that I wanted to ask about, which is um, there are, so far we've seen a number of what seem like trends uh, coming out of the pandemic that, you know, more remote work, people are cooking at home more, uh, people are leaving the cities. You know, I'm sure you've got a million others in mind. Which of them seem like they're going to stick versus uh, are, you know, more noise than signal, I suppose? The interesting thing, it's like accelerating certain things. So um, in medicine, for example, for a long time, we've been talking about telehealth and how desirable it is and how it's possible. We have all these technologies. But the reality is it wasn't taken up in the numbers that really made a difference. And suddenly during the pandemic, uh, it's just become widespread, right? I don't know if you've tried to make an appointment with a doctor, but per- probably they're offering you a televisit, right? I have. I did with a with a dermatologist, in fact. Yeah, and, exactly. Uh, I thought so he provided excellent st- service. 
Yeah. And in, in some ways, you just kind of go, why did this not happen? Well, we weren't in a crisis. So crisis, a lot of times, is an accelerant of things that are possible, but we're just like too set in our ways. And so I think like the transition to much more telehealth is here to stay. The transition to telework and distance, long distance work uh, probably is going to take for some, but you can also see the downsides of it and that people really are starred for human contact and contact with their uh, peers, with their colleagues. And so, yeah, some of this is going to stick. And the longer this pandemic, this quarantine is going on, is that I think we're really fundamentally rethinking our lives. But what makes you think that those things will be things that stick in some form versus things that are just uh, relatively short-term uh, adaptations or accommodations to the you know particular weird quarantine situation. How do you differentiate? How do you differentiate, you, you know, like these kinds of things where, you know, certain things that like telehealth, for example, or remote work for some people. So it's like the infrastructure is there, all the elements are there, and it just like took a spark to to start it to to move it from sort of the margins to the mainstream um you know the thing about people leaving cities again kind of historically the reality is there's all kinds of entertainment and stimulation and infrastructure that is in cities that serve as an attractor so yes People are leaving. There are a lot of conversations now about people leaving San Francisco uh, and sort of New York as well. Yeah, New York area. is, yeah. Yeah, because they're expensive and it does make sense. But, you know, I, I believe that they will be back. Is there anything that uh, you would have expected to see that hasn't actually come to fruition? I, I think it's incredible to see the degree to, first of all, the degree to which our government infrastructure is failing us it's in broken. so many ways. Yeah. Um, it's kind of, you knew that, but it's so glaringly in the open now. So to see this kind of um, inability to put systems in place, I mean, come on, we're the richest country in the world, right? We have the mightiest technologies. We're the home of Silicon Valley. So as much as we kind of suspected it and knew it, to see this to this level, it's, it is revealing in a new yeah. way. Well, we're the, richest country, uh, we're the richest country in the world on average, but I think that the average person's experience of living here is not. Well, it's like we're actually living in two countries. In yeah. Yeah. There was this uh, great, I, I was, I mean, Dan, you kind of know it. I don't know if you saw the New York Times article about parties, very fancy parties for high worth individuals, where before you can come in, there's a private doctor testing everybody before <laughs> they can go into a party of like $500. So, uh, oh, I don't know. Have boy, you been to those no. parties? Uh, no, no, Marina, I have not. I have <laughs> not. Uh, I have not been invited. And if I were invited, I don't think I'd go. Yeah. I don't think, yeah. Unless my insurance covered that's the, like the test, obviously. That's live, like this is the country in which some people live. Um, I, I wanted to, uh, there was a Medium post that you wrote not long ago, and I wanted to 
read a quote from it and then ask you about it. Um, it says this, uh, even as all these very real crises demand immediate attention, there's a longer story to be written right now, today. And this story has to be told by all of us because the stories we write and the actions we take today will shape how we emerge from this crisis. I want to ask, when you talk about story in that context, what do you mean by story and the story that we have to tell? Um, this is another belief that we have in terms of and the function of what we think of future thinking is. Uh, we don't think that the future is preordained. You know, there are no facts about the future, only fictions. And the future is something that we have capacity to shape. And one of the reasons for future thinking is to think about what is the story we want to write? What is it that we want to build? What is it that does not exist today that we can come together around. So that's the story of this pandemic. And there is a methodology that we use that's called alternative scenarios methodology, which the purpose of which, again, is not to predict the future, but look at the whole range of possibilities. And so um, the, it uses kind of archetypal scenarios growth. So things continuing basically as they've been. Um, there is another scenario archetype, which is collapse, you know, systems collapse. And you can argue that we're kind of in a collapse scenario. We're living it. That's um, not the story I want, though. I, yeah, I don't that's want not that. the story you want. It's actually surprising how many people, when you talk about alternative scenarios, how many people love the collapse scenario? Because this thinking is that <laughs> what? we're going to collapse and then we're going to build a new system. And come on. Well, we, I guess we'll find out soon enough. There, but that's uh, right? the it's it's. It's one thing to be prepared for that, but it's another thing to, uh, to live through it, to stand it too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. there's a huge cost to that, right? And who bears the cost of the collapse, and what who disappears? So um, you can argue that we're sort of in a collapse scenario, which to us was a lot of sort of civic unrest. You know, masks against no masks, all kinds of these kind of civic uh, division. Um, then there is constraint scenario, which is you introduce some kind of a constraint and you have to live in that environment of constraints. It's kind of you're operating in the environment of the virus still raging and you're trying to kind of operate within that constraint and have some uh, semblance of normalcy and normal life. Yeah. I mean, I feel, so that's interesting. I feel like the country... Or a lot of people would anyway would say like, well, we've been living in a constraint story in order to avoid a collapse story. Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, the but, thing about these maybe, scenarios not, is that, uh, working. and the reason you look at all of them is because there are elements of each one of them that is probably emerging in different parts. So huh. we are living in some collapse, we are living constraint, and we're trying to sort of get back to growth. Um, if you look at some of the stimulus packages and other things that are coming out, particularly the ones that are addressed to large companies and, and banks and saving those, that's kind of trying to get back to where we were. <laughs> but ultimately, as we were doing these scenarios, frankly, all of them looked kind of bleak to us. And so yeah, they don't sound good. Yeah. yeah. And they struck me also, they'd, they'd all be lousy names for perfumes also. <laughs> right. Collapse by. Collapse by. by, by I don't want Dior. that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yes. Constraint. Constrained by. Bring some home today, but not very much. Yeah. yeah. 
so we were building these scenarios and we, the last archetype is called transformation, which is really moving to something very, very different. We basically looked at each other and said, you know what? All of these other scenarios are looking pretty grim. So what does transformation look like? And what are the actions that we need to take today to move to this transformation? When you do that, do you seek out people from uh, different points on the political spectrum? Uh, we try to, yes. Yes. And you try to, <laughs> sounds like, but not with the degree of success that you might want. They, they... Well, we want to... We want to um, want to reach people who want the transformation, who've been thinking about the transformation. I see. Because, you know, some people want to go back to normal. Right. What was, it wasn't normal at all. It was very abnormal um, as being revealed, but they're not thinking about moving to something very, very different. So what have you come up with in these, I'm I'm interested in both the, both the extremes. Um, What's the, for the beautiful, optimistic transformation story that you think uh, is tellable in this or coming out of this pandemic. And I also want to know, you know, what uh, what you think the really grim collapse one could look like. Mm. And then I'll choose which one I prefer. Yeah, right. You can write your own story. You can write Thank your own you. story of collapse. Yeah, yeah transformation with with some constraint so and a scooch of collapse, just a yeah. scooch. Yeah. In our scenario, we call it social solidarity um, scenario. And in my sort of what I've been thinking about is what I, what I call mutualism. Let me just explain what that means. What we're seeing on the ground now and some of the hopeful signals um, is that people are coming together in all kinds of mutual aid efforts, right? People serving breakfast for free in their neighborhoods, people delivering food to people who need it, volunteers, people coming together. Um, and the, the good thing is, yes, we probably, this is very much needed for us to get through this period. But if we don't put the infrastructure underneath it that supports that kind of effort that says it's not something on the margin, it's actually the norm. And if you think about it, over the last probably 40 years, we've kind of been operating the policies we've put in place. It's all been in the kind of an anti-mutualist agenda. Mm. It's sort of, I benefit, I don't care about anybody else. Everything is a private good. Everything is you know, private. So it's right. a kind of a very different kind of ideology in the first place. And then it's also building the institutional infrastructure that supports mo- a lot more of the mutualist efforts, meaning the kind of things that benefit a lot of people rather than individuals. What and, would that, what's an example of a piece of infrastructure that would support that? I, well, for example, I think my, my imagination is not like all I, I go to like to like something in the tax code, but I'm sure that's not imaginative enough. For example, encouraging creation of co-ops of various kinds. Um, you know, co-ops have also existed for a long time, but it's very difficult for them to get access to funding, to financing. They're at a huge disadvantage or requiring companies to give stock to all of their employees, including their contractors. So basically spreading the results of wealth and more broadly. It, to me, it's like the four 
core sort of principles of mutualism. One is that it's about sort of realizing interdependence, that we're all interdependent. And I think we're feeling that now. The reality is that health is a, a good that's, it's, there's no such thing as private health. Ultimately, it's all public health. So it's about that. It's about making education, much more public education available. So thinking about housing as a right, which is a lot of Europeans think about housing as a right, not treating it as an asset or something I invested. in. Yeah. And what you just described sounds, in general, sound, this is very general, but it sounds more or less you know, Scandinavian social democracy mm-hmm. way like of thinking. That. Yep, yep. And then what about the flip side? What about the dark side? Well, collapse is a very dark side of it. Yeah. And collapse is basically really, it's tribalism, which we're sort of experiencing in, in some ways, but it can get a lot, a lot worse. It's basically high levels of distrust in each other. It's demise of a lot of public institutions that bring people together. Um, It's about not trusting in science. Uh, It's about conspiracy theories. And, you know, our politics have been driven so much by conspiracy theories that unfortunately our social media uh, platforms amplify in many ways and propagate. So it's it's about kind of civic civic um, breakdown. Are there elements of a collapse narrative that the Trump administration does not embody? Because you just seem to <laughs> read their rap sheet back to me. Yep, you got it. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, in your view, like, what would that worse most plausibly be? Well, the worst is more, you know, you take a population that's incredibly divided. It's militias. It's private militias running on our streets, running around our streets. Um, It's literally getting to that. It's Mm. like if you take it really, which I really don't even want to think about it, but some kind of a civil war. Yeah. So that's not where we want to go. Okay. No, I agree. I agree with you. So, but to just say this. Yes, the Trump administration, let's be honest, is amplifying this and enabling this um, and using it in many ways. But this has been building up for a long time. This is not new. What do you trace it back to? Is there a thing, is there, is there a, a moment when you would, like society made a kind of decision and then we went off on this path? It's probably a lot more complicated than that, but, uh, but I don't care. <laughs> I would say the turning point, probably just looking at the data, I think where you start looking at is 1970s. And that's kind of the beginnings of where wealth inequality started to grow. And we know from research and from data that levels of inequality correlate with low levels of trust in each other in kind of the they're destructive to social bonds in the society. So all you have to look is is beginning of the 70s and then progressively getting worse, where the levels of inequality today, wealth inequality, were probably at the level of 100 years ago, like 1920s, basically. Right. Uh, and, and in some ways, historically, we're in a very similar spot, right? 1920s were the go-go years. The stock market was booming. We had tremendous wealth and uh, then sort of uh, close to collapse. 
It rhymes, as you were saying. It rhymes, even. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you, so uh, as I think you know, this is a, a reboot podcast, a Jewish organization. I want to ask you, in the context of what you do, what is it that makes things last? And particularly thinking about Judaism's like 5,800 years old, what, what has given it its resilience and what, what qualities are there that might exist in other things that are resilient that we can extrapolate from? That's a great question. <laughs> um, I think there is a certain, I always think about it because I'm not, you know, what's called a practice, you know, I'm, I don't, I'm not a religious Jew. Mm-hmm. I, I was born, as you know, probably in the Soviet Union uh, without any religion. Um, but when no. Did you, when did you very, come to the U.S.? Huh? When did you come to the U.S.? How old were you? I was 18. Um, but I have a very deep sense of being Jewish, right? And, um, you know, it comes from culture. It comes from reading Jewish authors. It comes from the whole history, you know, growing up in, in the Soviet Union in those times after way after World War II, but relatives being killed during the Holocaust and all of that, you were just permeated with stories, right? It's a stories, but it's a certain way of thinking and there's a certain kind of resilience. But I always think of this coming from my particularly unique background because, mm. you know, Jews were discriminated against. Uh, I certainly experienced it and my family experienced it in, uh, in our daily lives in the Soviet Union, but it creates such a strong sense of identity, right? So instead of like wanting to blend in, it gives you like, <laughs> I'm married to a non-Jew, to a also lapsed Catholic, but, um, you know, when we were getting married, his parents were concerned, of course, about religious differences and sure. suggested that maybe we should be married in the church or maybe I should convert. And I said, you know, you, you can put me in any church. You can do whatever. I'm a Jew. I'm just like, <laughs> I think like a Jew. I act like a Jew. I, this is who I am. It's so, so deeply embedded in who I am. Um, and I don't know what it is. Like, you know, I sometimes feel like being oppressed <laughs> creates that sense of identity yeah. Um, and certain kind of resilience, right? Um, so in, in some weird way, I think, like, you know, I mean, like, a, like, a, like a callus develops, like that sort of thing. Like it's, it makes, it does make you tougher. It does make you tougher, but it also, it creates a certain kind of level of, I think, of like being always an outsider. And as an outsider, there's an author, always another way of looking at things. Um, you know, you can look at it from a different side. And there's something sort of resilient about that, that there's not this, I don't feel it like- might make you, It might make you uh, more adaptive. Perhaps. Yes. There's yeah. not this sense of absolutism in your thinking that, you know, and obviously the somehow culturally or somewhere, somehow we embody this way of thinking that everything is up for discussion, that you're thinking constantly, that you are- kind of noodling everything and and do you ever see that movie Hester Street yeah um, 
and I love the ending of the movie. They go down the street and they go on the one hand, there is yeah. there's on the <laughs> other hand. And that's how, you know, that there's something very resilient about that, right? I see. And so, uh, and that can apply to, as beyond the, beyond the religion, to people, to organizations, uh, by having them be questioning by uh, questioning, what would you, what would you, what thinking, would you apply to? Rethinking, you know, being able to discuss and being able to argue about things, but like the depths of kind of um, conversations about things and the, the, the deep sort of constantly questioning and constantly rethinking. I, I don't know. What do you think it is? Uh-oh. I was afraid you'd ask me that. <laughs> I have no idea. That's why I'm asking you. Um, no, there's something about that. I think that the uh, idea about adaptiveness makes sense to me. I never thought of it uh, before in quite that way. And there's probably some luck involved, too. And I don't know. Yeah. And kind of being out. I, I do think that being outsiders and having to survive a lot of times in very hostile environments, right? Uh, there's something, there's some resilience that you build up. Oh, it doesn't kill you any stronger. Yeah. Um, Marina Gorbis, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it seems like the priming is perfect. Someone's at your door. <laughs> Here you go. Somebody's will, at the door. I will. It's, I think it's the future. Go I get it. Another delivery. <laughs> or a delivery. Yeah. <laughs> the or, future. Yeah. or it's the Amazon delivery, which is, you know. Exactly. A version of the future. Uh, for in quarantine, I'm Steve Bodo saying 54 per 100,000 is nice, but it's no 23 per 100,000. <laughs> <laughs>